Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. Welcome to episode 7 of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. And if you've been listening to the podcast over the last few months, you know that my name is Ken Zerman Jr. And this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling, particularly between 1870 and 1915, although sometimes we range all the way up into the 1930s. However, as I said in the last episode, I just don't want this to be a solo podcast anymore, so... I want to introduce my son, Caleb, who I've asked to sit in and work with me on the podcast now. And I asked Caleb to sit in with me for two reasons, really. Number one, you, you don't mind talking. No. <laughs> when I when I talked to your brother, Trey, about it, I said, hey, I think I'm going to ask your brother to be the host of this show. And he said, well, that's good because I don't like to talk. And by the way, he's not the uh, host, he's the co-host. And he went into a lengthy explanation of why that was it sounded all right but you know whatever roles we hold he's social like that <laughs> yeah, yeah the the two of us are going to do the podcast going forward and the other thing was you were not a pro wrestling fan i was not no right we, we stopped when i was very young yeah you, you guys didn't watch it growing up because i didn't like the violence towards women during the attitude era yeah and by the time you guys were old enough to start watching it on your own I was pretty much into MMA, and we didn't really have cable. No. And I didn't watch pro wrestling from about 2010-ish to 2016. It was a guy I worked with got me to watch Ring of Honor first, Mm -hmm. and then NXT second, which kind of got me interested in it again. Yeah. I've always been interested in the history. I was doing the history of it even when I wasn't watching it between 2013 and 2016. Um, but one of the interesting things is for the update this uh, week, I didn't really want to go into the p- project I'm currently working on. We'll talk about that in the next episode Okay. on the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. But the biggest news in pro wrestling probably in my lifetime is Vince McMahon forced to resign. <laughs> Cowardly King John is... <laughs> <laughs> you, you heard me talk about it in the car. You heard Jim Cornette oh, yeah. talking about it. Uh, all of the... Uh, things that he had been doing, uh, sexual misconduct, kind of came up and and bit him. As it normally does. (laughs) Yeah, well, one of the interesting things is, and this is all just supposition, but I think why he was pretty much forced to retire is he had paid, according to the statements, and they know they're under SEC investigation now, so I'm Mm -hmm. sure that they're looking at them and double-checking them twice, but the... uh, Vince paid them out of his personal funds, but the company had to go back and uh, file a, a put a filing in with the SEC that there were fourteen point six million uh, expenses that were not categorized properly yeah. in the past, and that Vince had either paid them back or was paying them back. Fourteen point six million also happens to be the exact amount of money that was paid out. 
in these hush money payments or NDA payments, however you want to describe them. So that those amounts <laughs> match exactly. So it sounds like, and again, this will all come out in a few months. Yeah. We'll know what happened. It sounds like he paid them out of personal funds and then somehow recouped that money out of company funds. And now they're making that right and he'll pay that money back. But as I told you a couple weeks ago, the one thing that came out of this that makes me hopeful again mm -hmm. is Triple H now is over talent relations, he's over creative. And it was yeah. Triple H who ran NXT when I started watching wrestling again. So the yeah. things he does make sense. Um, the early results, SummerSlam, because we're recording this on, today is August 5th. Mm -hmm. SummerSlam, the pay-per-views, even under Vince, were better than the shows. The shows are pretty much unwatchable. Yeah. But Raw and SmackDown even made a little bit more sense the last couple weeks. And SummerSlam exceeded expectations. So, early results. Maybe some wrestling fans will come back and start watching WWE, which Vince did his best to run off as many people as he possibly could. Well, I mean, if the internet has taught anyone anything, it's that people are clamoring to watch people fight. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely got a chance for coming back. Yeah. yeah. So, before we get into the main topic for this month, what I wanted to ask you was, are, do you know many people that in your age group in that are wrestling fans? Group. So a lot of them are kind of lukewarm wrestling fans. It's more of, you know, the meme as, you know, that's really popular on the internet, which, you know, also kind of gives hope because that could get more people into it. Yeah. Yeah. I just... I. I don't hear your cousins talk about it much, and they were really into it. They were. They had t-shirts, everything. Yeah, and I, I don't see as many people in your age group anymore as interested in it. Yeah. So I was just curious. Uh, when I was growing up, there were people who loved wrestling, and there were people mm -hmm. who hated wrestling. Yeah. And you kind of got made fun of sometimes if you liked wrestling, but... <laughs> Then in the 90s, with the Monday Night Wars, it became mainstream. But then mainstream, and then everybody could be a fan, and you know people didn't shame you. Now, I don't know that people shame you. It's just sort of a thing that it's not nearly as popular as it once was, so it's a much smaller group of people watching it. Yeah, no. It's sort of like Lord of the Rings, and I think maybe once it lost its edge, like a lot of the diehards kind of stepped away. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, like you said, Vince ran that show into the ground. Yeah, and you knew because when you were coming back uh, forth with me to work, you listened to a lot of Jim Cornette's podcast. Yeah. And you've heard him talk about it, and he's talked about how many fans have fallen away. Mm -hmm. When WCW closed, because that was the last uh, wrestling show that really kind of had Southern-style wrestling on it. Yeah. Seven million people quit watching you know, so that, that's a hard, and these are not numbers that are made. This is 7 million people had, had quit watching it. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm more hopeful with Triple H over creative in that. Well, and yeah, no, I think Triple H could handle it a lot better. I do remember him a lot from my childhood. Him yeah. and The Undertaker. Yeah, they were big yeah. in the 90s. So. So. My topic for this month is, it was actually kind of a disappointing project for me, but it was the Mass Marvel and the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament. So I know I first heard about the Mass Marvel in this tournament, watching Wrestling at the Chase from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So one of the matches you watched for this, 
leading up yeah. to this was uh, David Reiner versus Harley Race. Yes. The commentator doing all that commentating, that's Larry Matisik. Ah. So Larry yeah. Matisik was a historian himself. He knew a lot about pro wrestling. He used mm-hmm. to talk about Dan O'Mahony, who was a champion in the 30s and yeah. popularizing the Irish whip. And I know I heard the first reference to the first mask wrestlers. Every once in a while, a mask wrestler would come to town. Sam Muchnick didn't book a whole lot of gimmicks, but he did have every once in a while, they'd have a mask wrestler come to town. So I know that I heard about the mask marvel on an episode of Wrestling at Chase with Larry Matisik. And I always kind of had it in my mind. I'm going to research that one day, you know, go back. Because I was already a big uh, fan of history. I was a student of history at that point. I wasn't yeah. doing history yet, but I was a, a big student of history. I was the kid at school. I didn't like math. I didn't like science. But I had read my entire history book by like October or November mm-hmm. of that, that school year. And I was starting to learn historical methods and that. So I said, you know, one day I'm going to go back in and I'm going to go into the newspaper archives and see what this is yeah. all about. And one thing I've found over the past 20 or 25 years going back and researching things, a lot of the things that you heard or, or commonly held beliefs about something yeah. aren't really true. <laughs> when you dig into it, well, that was kind of true, but it wasn't completely. There was other things happening. So the first thing I discovered, which I wasn't expecting, the Mass Marvel did get involved in the 1950 New York International Wrestling Tournament, mm-hmm. but he got involved in the fall tournament because the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament yeah. was actually two tournaments, the spring tournament and a fall tournament. Was it like a preliminary or was it just the entire contest split down the middle? I think he originally... Because it was it was two complete tournaments. Yeah. So there wasn't a champion. There should have been. Mm-hmm. And that'll get it more into the, the story as we go along. Yeah. But the spring tournament was to crown a champion. Okay. And it was odd because by 1915, catches catch can wrestling with hooks, which we would call submissions. Right. Um, and for the listeners, my son is a brown belt in judo. He took judo uh, with me and started when he was six. So he's very familiar with submission and grappling and everything else. Yeah. So, but catch had hooks, mm-hmm. and you could grab the legs. So you could do single legs, you could do double legs. Right. Greco-Roman is an upper body throwing style. And it was dominant in the 19th century here until about 1890, and then catch started surpassing it. And by the 1900s, Greco-Roman was sort of a specialty style. It was a novelty, yeah. <clears throat> but there was no championships really wrestling in it or anything like that. Well, Frank Gotch, who I know I've talked to you about many times, uh, he had retired as world champion in April of 1913. And people were trying to lure him back out of retirement, but he wasn't coming. And so they decided that they needed to replace Gotch. Right. So there were several promoters who wanted to replace Gotch. Sam Rockman came from Europe mm-hmm. with the intention of replacing Gotch with his handpicked guy, Alexander Aberg. Alex Aberg. Ah. He was a, a Russian Greco-Roman specialist. And legitimately, most of the con- competitions in this tournament, in mm-hmm. the spring for sure, in the fall they had a, worked more matches. But in the spring for sure, most of the matches were legitimate contests. And nobody beat Aberg, and 
I don't know that anybody in 1915 in the U.S. could beat Aberg. Yeah. To muddy the waters a little bit. Stanislaus Zbysko beat him in Greco-Roman <laughs> wrestling in 1914 for the world yeah. championship before he left. So the whole thing that they said that they were wrestling this tournament for the world Greco-Roman wrestling championship is mm-hmm. a bit of a fiction from the beginning. Right. Because Zbysko beat him the year before, but he goes back to Europe. And he joins the Polish army in World War uh, One, And he does not return to the U.S. until like 19, 1921, and he started wrestling in early... 22 or late 21 but he's basically in europe so he's gone yeah his brother vladik zabisco is the main contender in this tournament besides aberg mm-hmm. and zabisco could beat anybody else but he never was able to beat aberg yeah but the spring tournament it was about six weeks long it starts in the middle of may it goes to the end of june okay and as i told you there was no winner of that tournament initially there right. would be in October, but initially there was no, because they did have a championship match at the end of June between Aberg, who nobody beat, and Vladik Zabisco, who nobody in the tournament had beaten because Zabisco and Aberg did not meet during the spring tournament. Yeah. So, would you like to guess how long the championship match lasted before? Now, think of this. You're talking yeah. about a fan base, and this okay. this was popular. They sold out the Manhattan Opera House almost every night, and that was 6,000 fans. Some paid $2 for ringside. The rest paid $0.50 cents for the general admission tickets. This was popular, which was you wouldn't have expected it to be popular because it's an especially style. Mm. But because most of the fans saw the matches as legitimate, and they were getting very suspicious, they had been suspicious. They were getting more suspicious that most of the matches were being worked, which they were. <laughs> they That's what drew them. They, they liked this legitimate contest. But the problem with legitimate contests came up in this finale. So you already know they can't use leg takedowns. They can't use hooks. It's upper body holds. So imagine judo when they took out where you could use the leg to help throw. Yeah. You saw a lot of people tied up with... I, and I did it in the <laughs> wrestling I saw. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. how long do you think that these guys were tied up in this collar and elbow tie-up? I'd say five minutes, which doesn't seem that no, long. No, 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 no. More? We're, we're talking hours. Hours? Because <laughs> five minutes is already an eternity when you're fighting. Exactly. So <laughs> imagine you're a fan... And you're sitting out there, and these guys are tied up in a collar and elbow <laughs> for three hours and 45 minutes until Vladik Zabisco collapses on his face. And Rockman, in hindsight, he probably, because of what happened, probably should have yeah. just had him declare Aberg the winner. Because by the rules, he could have been declared yeah. the winner because Zabisco couldn't go on. Yeah. But they wanted a clear defeat with Aberg defeating Zabisco cleanly to establish him as the world Greco-Roman champion and they were hoping the successor to Frank Gotch for American wrestling fans. Yeah. And that's the problem with legitimate contests. There was a seven hour draw between Clarence Whistler and William Muldoon in the 1800s. Who's still around in that place after seven hours? But the champion, so... They had all of these write-ups in the New York newspapers of the 
yeah. card before that. Yeah. The championship match night, it was one paragraph, and yeah. it, was, it said, they were stalemated for three hours and 45 minutes until Vladik Zabisco uh, collapsed and could not continue. They have continued the championship match to a later date. The later date they chose was October because the winter or the fall tournament, I don't know that Rockman intended to have a fall tournament initially, Mm -hmm. but the spring tournament was so successful, he decides to have a fall tournament. Right. Going into this fall tournament, he has the championship match rematched. Okay. And this time it only goes an hour and like 15 minutes. Oh, well, thank God. (laughs) Yeah. And... This time, uh, Aberg is able to pin him. Yeah. And it was, again, it was a stalemate for like the first hour and ten minutes. Yeah. But Vladik Zabisco started to fatigue again, and this time Aberg threw him. God, no wonder they started throwing him chairs. Yeah, well, and that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's why people wonder why professional yeah. wrestling went from legitimate contests to war contests. It's because when you have... One, the promoters, when they, the promotional system was developed, which is what we're going to talk about in the next podcast. Right. We're going to talk about the development of the promotional system in the 19-teens and early 1920s. That pretty much cemented it. You only had legitimate contests after that to settle promotional wars or double crosses. Yeah. And we'll talk about, I've talked about a couple double crosses before. We'll talk about double crosses in future episodes too. Yeah. But the, the two reasons that really it moved there... The number one reason was they were having a hard time becoming a spectator sport Mm -hmm. because legitimate contests could be long and boring, higher degree of injury, and the wrestlers figured out on their own, they started working, and there's been work matches for as long as I've gone back and researched. Yeah. They started figuring out, well, most people can't figure out we're working. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We we can do this match and divide the money, you know? Yeah. And they would put each other over they would decide beforehand you'll go over whatever yeah um there's a lot less chance of injury and it was more exciting for the fans so you would get more fans to come in more fans means more paying customers means bigger gates for the wrestlers to split that's why they started working because who wants as a fan who wants to sit out there and watch people tied up for three hours and 45 minutes well, and I always hear people, you know, whenever you talk about wrestling and, you know, things, people always like, oh, well, you know, it's all fake. Yeah, no, it's just because it's fake doesn't mean it's not a great show, doesn't mean right. it's not entertaining. And I never have used fake. That's the, that's a term the common public use. That's what your grandpa used to tell me all the yeah. time. You know, that stuff's because he was a boxing yeah. guy. He loved boxing. But I always say prearranged worked, prearranged yeah. exhibitions because the damage these guys do to themselves it's is real. real. <laughs> and particularly the stuff you watched, those oh, yeah. guys laid it in. They just laid it in in safe places yeah. where it didn't feel good, but you didn't get hurt. Yeah. You were uncomfortable. Well, and like we were talking about in the car, you know, one of them got colored from the Iron yeah. Claw. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and they did their best to hide it from the fans that it was a work. But my argument for people all the time, and then we'll jump back into the fall tournament yeah. here in a minute. My argument for that all the time is, yes, we know it's worked. You know, yeah. There were a lot of people that believed in the old days. But your Aunt Vicky and I, when we would go to some of the matches, we would see some things and look at each other like, okay, that couldn't have been legitimate. But then you see some other things, you're like, boy, those guys were really mad at each other because they were yeah. much better at 
hiding what they were doing and everything. But I hate when people do something stupid on television because this is what I, I've told you. AEW, they yeah. have some great stuff. They have some really bad stuff. Yeah. So when someone criticizes them for the really bad stuff, which is a lot of times breaking the fourth wall or using inside jargon to, to please the smart things and everything, people will always get on there when you start to criticize that and say, you should be taking this seriously. And they'll go, well, you know it's all at work, right? Yes. As is every great TV show and movie ever made. Yeah. What do the great TV shows and great movies do? They take you out of reality and make you forget that these are actors playing roles. And what I blame for that is sort of meta-commentary, because that became... It, it was refreshing for a while, you know, you had movies like Deadpool, shows like Rick and Morty that kind of poked fun at themselves. But that's all it's supposed to be, it's refreshing. That <laughs> You don't need to be teleporting on stage. Right. Exactly. And, Doing things that are yeah. just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you heard him talking about that teleporting. <laughs> yeah, try to sell that to grown adults. <laughs> yeah. So, jumping into the fall tournament. To start the fall tournament, they they have that rematch, which yeah. Edelberg wins. Mm-hmm. The fall tournament, he does a few different things, but the fans didn't come out for the fall tournament. Yeah. And he fails ultimately in his quest to replace Gotch and remind me of that at the end of this, because I just want to okay. get through the... Yeah. So what's different about the fall tournament is one he takes on a partner, Jack Curley. Right. Now Jack Curley became one of the most powerful promoters in wrestling mm. in the late teens, the nineteen twenties, and the nineteen thirties until he dies in nineteen thirty seven. In nineteen fifteen he was just getting started out in New York and he was promoting both wrestling and boxing because yeah. he was not the wrestling guy yet. He first got uh he had been Involved with professional wrestling since the 1900s. He got involved either in 1905 or 1907 in his first thing, but he was more a Mm. manager. Like, he was George Hackenschmidt's manager during the second uh, match. But we'll talk about next uh, episode when we talk about the development of the promotion system. Mm -hmm. This was sort of initially backers. Usually paid for venues and got matches because it was stuff they wanted to see, and they usually lost their shirts on it. Yeah. As pro wrestling started to develop into a minor spectator sport, the managers would work with athletic clubs and cities and stuff like that Mm -hmm. to get their uh, events scheduled. So they kind of were quasi-promoters. They were still managers. They were kind of quasi-promoters. And that's what was going on with this. They used the Empire Club in Chicago a lot of time to stage the big events. Mm-hmm. But they would also kind of work as sort of quasi promoter manager yeah. for the for the talent as well. So and that's where he made a ton of money was in that because the Gotch Hackenschmidt second match in 1911 in Chicago mm-hmm. drew over 30,000 fans. Pro right. wrestling wouldn't draw that kind of a crowd again until the 1930s with Jim Alondis. Yeah. So he made a killing, saw how lucrative it could be, and set himself up in New York City. Because that, that match happened in Chicago. He set himself yeah. up in New York City. And he was just starting out in 1915. Rockman decides to partner with him because he feels like Curley's knowledge of the U.S. Because Rockman's a European promoter. Mm-hmm. He came from Europe with the express uh, purpose of trying to get Aberg accepted by the American public as the champion. Yeah. He partners with Curley. And Curley gets him to add some catch 
as catch can wrestling matches in there because that's what the fans are used to. Yeah. And the initial week was like Greco Roman and nobody came out. So yeah. then they started adding in catch wrestling and they got Ed Strangler Lewis, who wasn't Ed Strangler Lewis, the dominant champion of the twenties yet. Mm. He was really coming into his own in 19. He started coming into his own in 1913 and 1915. He was really coming into his own, mm-hmm. but he didn't beat Aberg and Greco Roman. Yeah, but Aberg was smart enough not to wrestle Strangler Lewis and catch. Yeah, he 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 refused to wrestle anybody and catch wrestling. Vladik Zabisco would wrestle wrestle Lewis, mm-hmm. but Aberg would not. Which is one of the reasons he wasn't accepted. Yeah, like I said, remind me of that at the end. So people aren't coming out. They add in the catch wrestling. Mm-hmm. People still aren't coming out. So you're talking they go almost all the way through November. Yeah, and they're. Half houses, they're they're taking a financial shellacking because you still got to pay for the building, you still got to pay the wrestlers. So I don't know if it was Curly or Rockman, but Curly never claimed credit for it. So I've got to yeah. believe that Sam Rockman came up with this. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea of a mass challenger who nobody would know who it was to come sit ringside and complain that Rockman wasn't letting him into the tournament. Because he was too good, and if he got into the tournament, uh, he would beat everybody. Yeah. So the first night or two that he's out complaining at ringside, Rockman hasn't thrown out. Yeah. Okay, it's building up the, the tension and everything. Mass, who, who eventually he identifies himself as the Mass Marvel. He yeah. keeps coming. So that started like on December 2nd or 3rd. December 9th, Rockman, after he's been there four or five times, been thrown out a couple of times, says, okay, you can come into the tournament. Yeah. So his first match, which I think was the next night, it wasn't the ninth, but his first match is with a, a very capable uh, grappler uh, from Germany. Oh, his first name is Wilhelm Berner. Wilhelm Berner. His mm. first name was escaping me for a second. Yeah. <laughs> But Berner was one of the best wrestlers who didn't wasn't in the finals in that spring tournament. Mm-hmm. So in the fall tournament, he's the Mass Marble's first opponent, and the Mass Marble goes through him like a hot knife through butter. Yeah, and then he beats a, a few other guys. Then they match him with George Lurich, who's older, but he's a well-known international wrestler, and he's Aberg's trainer. Mm-hmm. And it takes him like twenty twenty-five minutes to beat uh, the our. It takes the Marvel 20, 25 minutes to beat Lurich. He yeah. beats Lurich, too. Because they went to a 20-minute draw. Mm-hmm. And the Mass Marvel asked Lurich, give me five more minutes. And at first, he refuses. The fans start booing. And then Lurich says, okay, I'll give you five more minutes. And then he beats him. Yeah, The Marvel beats him. And the Marvel basically is running through everybody until he gets to Aberg. All right, and Aberg wrestles him to a sixty-minute draw the first time they wrestle. Mm-hmm. The second uh, time they wrestle, he's kind of already been exposed, so it's a different outcome. But I'll yeah, we'll keep going because that also figures into why the fans didn't accept a- Aberg. Yeah. Two nights later, he's beaten by Strangler Lewis. Yeah. Lewis was the first person to beat him. And then Vladik Zabisco beat him. Hmm. Now he's beaten everybody else. And then Aberg trashes him. 
<laughs> the second time they meet, and he did it so dismissively. First, he demanded he unmask, mm-hmm. and the Mass Marvel flat out refused. And he said he wasn't going to wrestle him, but the fans booed. So he wrestled him, and he destroyed. I can't remember if it was a fight, but he he played with him at first, and then he pinned him, and it was over with. And then the aura of the Mass Marvel was destroyed after yeah. that match. Which also killed the tournament because people quit coming out to the tournament and <laughs> and they had been covered from December when he makes his debut until mm-hmm. he gets trashed by Aberg. And he got trashed by Aberg between Christmas and New Year's mm-hmm. in December. They Basically, they killed the Golden Goose that had saved their tournament. Yeah. So why they killed the Golden Goose, though, was a newspaper reporter overheard the Mass Marvel talking to his manager. And he frequently covered wrestling, and he was familiar with most of the Northeastern wrestlers. He couldn't figure out who the Mass Marvel was by just looking at him. But when the manager said, Mort, are you okay? The reporter who was sitting on the other side of the curtain immediately goes, that's Mort Henderson, <laughs> who was a part-time railroad detective mm-hmm. from Altoona, Pennsylvania, uh, I'm sorry, he was a full-time railroad detective. He was a part-time wrestler yeah. from Altoona, Pennsylvania. And Mort Henderson could best be described as a journeyman wrestler. Ah. So they printed, once that reporter heard that, he printed who he believed he was. Now, Lewis had already beat him. Yeah. Um, and that might have been a catch match. Lewis had already beat him, but Vladik Zabisco nor Aberg had beat him yet. They both had wrestled him to our draws. Mm-hmm. And Lewis probably wrestled him to a draw initially, too. And he beat everybody else. Yeah. Well, how do you explain how a journeyman wrestler, who's only a part-timer and is a full-time railroad detective, how would he come in all of a sudden and hang with these world-class athletes and wrestle them to draws? Yeah. So what do you think the answer to that is? Oh, shoot. If I had to guess, maybe it worked match. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's why I think they panicked. Because up until Vince McMahon revealed that it was a worked business, promoters from then all the way up to the 80s and 90s did everything they could to make sure that that never got out. People always suspected. People always made allegations. But... It was different than having proof of someone that's involved in it saying, yep, it's all at work. And that they panicked. Yeah. Because they're like, okay, if the fans all hear that he's Mort Henderson, they're going to know these matches are worked. And the whole reason that everybody was coming out during the spring tournament and probably coming back out during the fall when the Mass Marvel showed up is they think these are legitimate contests. Yeah. So they immediately have Zabisco beat him and Aberg trashed him. Yeah. And the way Aberg did it, I think Aberg resented having to give him a draw in the first time. I don't think he wanted to work the match with him. Mm -hmm. And because he admitted later that he worked a couple matches for Curly, because he he sued Curly in 1917. Yeah. And he admitted around this time he worked a couple of matches, but then he said once he found out how the American wrestling fans hated that, he refused to do that. He he would only do legitimate contests after that. Yeah. And he said that under oath. So people may be doubtful, but he did testify yeah. under oath that that happened. Well, as soon as they killed the Golden Goose, one, the fans turned on Aberg big time after he destroyed the Mass Marble. 
Because even if they knew it was Mort Henderson, they liked the Mass Marvel, they had gotten behind him. Yeah. And Aberg beating him so dismissively, they booed that guy out of the building, and he never could get popular with the American public after that. And that's really, that, there was three things that killed him being looked at as uh, Gotcha's successor. The number one thing, and the reason I said they waited too long to have that championship match between Zabisco mm-hmm. and Aberg. Joe Stecker wrestled Charlie Cutler for the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship mm-hmm. in the summer of 2015, or 2015, the summer of 1915. Yeah. And so the fans started recognizing him as the world champion, as yeah. Gotcha's successor. They changed, they quit calling it the American Championship and started calling him the world champion because the fans recognized him. Yeah. This is Frank Gotcha's successor. And he and Gotch were going to do a worked match where mm-hmm. Gotch lost to him yeah. and anointed him as his successor because he was tired of all these people challenging him. Yeah. And Stecker worked with uh, Gotch's old trainer, Farmer Burns, so he was more than willing to put over Stecker to anoint him as his successor and not be bothered with all these challenges anymore. And yeah. He'd get, that, that would have been a big match. They would, But he broke his leg in training. Mm-hmm. So that match never happened, but it didn't matter. The public accepted Stecker, as, yeah. and but the public knew that Gotch was getting ready to wrestle Stecker. Yeah. The other thing was, fans saw Aberg as a Greco-Roman wrestling specialist, mm-hmm. but the dominant style in America was catch wrestling. Yeah. So they were not going to accept him unless he won some catch matches with some people, and he absolutely refused. He was smart to refuse it with Lewis because Lewis would have beat him easily. Um, But because of that specialist mindset, you know, I'm only going to wrestle because he didn't want to lose. Okay, well, you you might win all the Greco-Roman matches, but you're not going to be accepted by the the public, which is your fan base. And then finally, the other reason that they didn't accept him is they didn't like him. (laughs) And they didn't really, they were ambivalent about him Mm-hmm. Before he smoked the Mass Marvel, yeah. But after he embarrassed the Mass Marvel, then they didn't like him. So he wrestled in the U.S. for another year, and then he went back to Europe. And unfortunately, he and Lurch both died in uh, early 1921. They caught typhoid fever. They get all, they got caught up in the Russian Civil War. Yeah, they both caught typhoid fever. I've had a Estonian historian has contacted me. And mm-hmm. said that they were killed by the Bolsheviks. I was like, okay, it's possible. It was during that time, and they yeah. were fleeing the Bolsheviks. I just like let me see those sources you're you're citing, and I'll be happy to change what I've written because I'm going by the sources I found. Yeah, they said that Lurich died of the actual typhoid fever. Aberg recovered from the typhoid fever, but mm-hmm. caught pneumonia during his recovery, and he died like two or three weeks after. Yeah, um, Lurich did. But I would be happy to change it if somebody could produce the sources mm-hmm. because they were running from the Bolsheviks at the time. And because it's a closed news system and government over there, you know, yeah. you can send out whatever you want no matter what happened. So th- yeah. it's not an impossible scenario, but you got to provide sources before you get people to change. Well, yeah, no, saying. especially if it was like an official work. Because was that one of your books or one of your podcasts? No, this is a book. This is yeah. I told you this is the most. Uh, I this book is called Mass Marvel to the Rescue, <laughs> and it's probably my most disappointing project because I thought people would really be interested in this because yeah. I always wanted to research it, and I actually put it off because the sources were not as readily available mm-hmm. 
as they would become when newspaper.com and everything yeah. started coming out. So the, the newspapers I had easy access to were in the, uh, not the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress collection. Yeah. But they don't have all the New York newspapers, and not all the newspapers were covering it anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, when newspapers.com got a hold of a lot of the collections in New York, I mm-hmm. had enough sources that I could piece together what happened enough yeah. to write about all of this. And I thought people would really be interested in this because it's the first mass wrestlers, the first mass yeah. gimmick. It saved the tournament. That tournament was going to be a terrible financial loss. Yeah. And it saved the tournament. It also introduced gimmicks, yeah. which a lot of wrestlers would use in the future. So I really expected people to think, well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it is my lowest selling book ever. Uh, and part of it I did to myself. I didn't realize there was a formatting issue with the ebook, mm-hmm. only on the Kindle readers. But I'm sure it was very frustrating for Kindle readers. Yeah. And somebody put that in a review. Mm-hmm. It had been out for a couple months at that time. Somebody put that in a review, and when I saw that, I went in right away. Because usually I don't read the reviews, but I saw poor formatting. And when I saw poor formatting, I'm like, what? And I clicked on it, and it was only for... The Kindle e-read. The person yeah. that did it even said that they said they opened it on something else, and you could read it just fine on that other thing. But it was yeah. frustrating not to be able to re- read it on their preferred device. So I fixed that that day and re-uploaded <laughs> it. Yeah. And it took care of it. Yeah. So on that part, that part is my fault. But it just it doesn't seem to be a topic that really resonates with people. Maybe it's just the anticlimactic ending of it all. You know. Uh, He's this rising star, you know, everybody loves him, but, you know, he might pull the curtain, so we got to, like you said, very dismissively. Yeah, but the funny thing is, after that went on, because I, I write about that in the book, Yeah, he was kind of crushed in New York City, mm-hmm. but he continued being the mass marvel for another two or three years and made a, a good amount of money doing that because people wanted to see the novelty of it, this mask guy yeah. that had come into this New York tournament and everything. Because they'd been writing about him all over the United States. He was in newspapers in Tennessee, in St. Louis, everywhere. Yeah. People were really, really interested in it. So he he quit the railroad detective job, and he, for another three, four, five years, I can't remember, it was the late teens. Mm-hmm. But he made enough money, he sold the mass Marvel perform, persona and everything, to another wrestler, his mask and everything. He sold him to another wrestler to be the new Mass Marvel. And yeah. he retired. Yeah. So he he was able to make a good thing, even though, you know, it was kind of... And it it was a big exposure of the wrestling. And yeah. You, you'd have one every once in a while, and it would hurt business for a while, and then it would start to come back around. Yeah. Um, and there was one other thing. You just said that. That just jarred my memory. I was going to say one other thing about that. Uh, something about Aberg, possibly. Aberg went back to to your oh Lewis. Lewis yeah. was really coming into his own at that time. Mm-hmm. So over the next six seven years, the title traded back and forth between Joe Stecker. These are work matches. Yeah. Joe Stecker, Earl Caddick, Strangler Lewis, and Vladek Zabisco. But Strangler Lewis and Joe Stecker were rivals. Mm-hmm. I can't find any incident that happened between them why they wouldn't like each other. I just think the reason they had animosity towards each other is they were the best in the world. Yeah. And one of them had to be the best. One of them was second best. 
and it was just this natural rivalry between the two. They wrestled three matches, legitimate contest that yeah. went hours. Uh, and between nineteen fifteen and nineteen sixteen or seventeen, they were working matches by seventeen. But I can't. I'm dying to find the third match. Yeah, I found the first two, which are draws. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lewis mainly wrestled defensively. Stecker, I think, was better at that point. Really. But then Lewis beat him in a legitimate contest in the third one. And then after that, they worked matches. Um, they did have one more shoot in 28, but we'll save that for a podcast one yeah. day. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, they they were the, the two best in the world for a long time, and I think that's why the two of them didn't. But Lewis was just coming into his own. Mm-hmm. By 1920, he would be the Ed Strangler Lewis that everybody talks about. And yeah. remembers. So this tournament is significant in wrestling history for a number of reasons, but yeah, it just, feels like the groundwork that you skip over, kind of maybe. You know, first chapter of every book. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know, and I mean, let's face it, maybe people just don't want to read about wrestling. <laughs> it wasn't popular in yeah. in the U.S. after 1900, so maybe it's still not that popular. And it's funny, uh, John Jones, that was his base, mm-hmm. Greco-Roman. Yeah. So let's get to the part that I've been waiting for, and that's what did you think of David Von Erich versus Harley Race? I actually really liked it. Um, so the one, when was the exact like year of this? This was 1978. So David Von Erich had been a wrestler... Hold on, I'm talking out of school. It was 79. 79. Because he had been a wrestler for two years. Okay. Because you can see, like, like whenever you said earlier, you know, how long were they locked. Because the first match we watched, that's immediately what they did. Um, and looking back, you could tell that the acting was a lot, was cheesier back then, but it was more believable. Because, you know, whenever ripping off his shirt and... You know, no, I'm gonna fight him. You know, you stay back. Oh, and, him yeah. and his dad are arguing. <laughs> yeah, you so can. let's set it up for yeah. anybody that wants to go out and watch this match. This yeah. is on the Best of St. Louis Wrestling Volume Two, and it's the very first match on there. Yeah, it's from Wrestling at the Chase in 1979, which this is very unusual because Harley Race didn't oftentimes wrestle on Wrestling at the Chase against someone competitive. He usually had a squash match against somebody. And this was really odd in that it was a handicap match. Harley had agreed that he would beat both David Von Erich and Fritz Von Erich within the time limit of the television show. And Fritz and David are supposedly arguing (laughs) at the beginning of this match about who was going to go in. So I did find that kind of odd. (laughs) That they hadn't figured out before they came out who was going to wrestle Harley. And I, you know, that's obviously selling drama. You know, they started, you know, that's a good precursor to the gimmicks and stuff. Um, but also, like, some of the other matches, like the women tag team, you can tell just, like, how back then, oh, how how nerfed that was. Yeah, because I watched everything. You, 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 you're, you're talking about uh, Wendy Richter and Judy Grable. Yeah. No. Was was it Wendy Richter and Lalani Kai versus Judy Grable? It, it was two tag teams. It was. Wendy yeah. Richter, I think it was Wendy Richter and Lalani Kai, because I think they were the tag team champions at the time. Yeah. Um, that was before the Kerry Von Erich Ken Patera match that we're going to talk about next episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you look at all of that stuff. They do 
a much better job of trying to hide that they're working with each other. Yeah. And now that, because you said that, I, I thought that that was funny too. I would not have caught that as yeah. an 11-year-old fan. My favorite wrestlers when I started, and I started watching about that time. I started watching mm-hmm. around 79 or 78, but I think it was 79 because I would have been 10. Yeah. And my the first match I went to was January 25th, 1980. Mm-hmm. And then your Aunt Vicky and I started going. I went to, nah. with that match to Ken Sr. That was my 11th uh, birthday present. Ah. But the following year, your Aunt Vicky and I started going, and we went to the matches in St. Louis for about three years. Unfortunately, uh, we saw Sam's retirement show, mm-hmm. and then the cards started to drop off. They picked up a little bit in 84, okay. because we were getting all the syndicated world-class shows, which was the Von Erich show. Yeah. So we got a lot of those matches and some of the better AWA matches. There weren't a lot of great AWA matches, but we. So '84 was kind of a peak, and we quit going in either '85 or '86 because it was so bad. We were just like, "Well, yeah. this is not what we used to watch and enjoy." Yeah. But going back, I watched it too, and going back now with 53 year old eyes and have nah. seen a lot of pro wrestling, have researched a lot of pro wrestling. The first thing that did strike me was that kind of at the beginning where yeah. Fritz and him are talking about who it's going to be. They're ripping off their shirts. Yeah. and No, I'm going in, Dad. No, I'm yeah. going to take him. Making sure their facial expressions are good enough. You can see it right. in the back. And I'm like, okay, guys. If yeah. I'm going out there with my son and we're going to have a handicap match with the world champion, I already know who's going in first. We've yeah. already talked about that in the back. and figure We're not going to have an argument in the ring over who's going to gonna wrestle them and that's also something that i feel like is underappreciated in wrestling is just how into it the guys got you know even if it was fixed they treated it like it was real yes they treated yeah. it like it was real and did you see the fan reactions when yeah. they do stuff yeah no they they were into it and that's why they talked about you had to be very careful because the wrestling fans who were true believers oh god even, i would hate to be a heel even <laughs> Jim Cornette has said, yeah, Jim Cornette said, yeah. you didn't go out in the crowd and stuff like that. No. But he has said that he knew people that would go to shows mm-hmm. and were half smart to what was going on. Yeah. But he knew a guy that came with his aunt all the time. They knew him. Yeah. And he knew that this was not all that meets the eye. Some of this is showbiz and razzle yeah. dazzle. But he got so caught up in a match one night... <laughs> He charged the ring. And one of the wrestlers booted him in the head. Threw him out of the ring. But he got so caught up into what he was seeing. Yeah. But that's good. That's what every good television yeah. show, every good movie does. Yeah. They get you... I, I told you, I don't think you've watched it yet. Mm-hmm. But one of the greatest characters in modern television is Ivar the Boneless from the TV show Vikings. Right. Because... Just when you think, okay, that's it. This guy is a lunatic. I can't stand this guy. He does something to remind you of his humanity or the fact that he was left out to die by his father and rescued by his mother. You know, yeah. He's one of the greatest characters in modern television. And you forget you're watching Alexander Huff Anderson, the actor. Yeah. You think you're watching Ivor the Boneless. That is what great television, great movies great professional wrestling there's an art to professional wrestling yeah no and it's a lost art for a number of people because they see it as a series of moves Mm. in the old days they talked about telling a story 
Yeah. You're telling a story in the ring. The grudges, the you know, right. team-ups. And so, for me, the story of that match is you've got this up-and-coming kid named David Von Erich mm-hmm. who's going to be a world title contender. And some people today will doubt that. I, I've heard many people question, oh, was David Von Erich ever really going to be the world champion? Yes, he was. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because Sam Muchnick trusted him enough in 1979. He had been in the business for two years Mm-hmm. At that point. And if he was 20 years old, he was just... No, I'm sorry. He, he was 21. Yeah. Just turned 21. And the world champion got color for him. Mm-hmm. And lost clean to the Iron Claw in the middle of the ring. Yeah. That means Harley Race believed in him. Because Harley Race would not have done that for just no. anybody. Sam would not have allowed that to happen for just anybody. And mm-hmm. blood was not a common thing in St. Louis. You would get it in matches, but it, it had to mean something. Yeah. Everybody in the card wasn't getting... There, there's places yeah. that everybody was getting juice, as they called it. St. Louis was never like that. They did that stuff rarely. There was fights outside the ring rarely. There were guys yeah. grabbing chairs rarely. Because when they did do it, they wanted it to mean something. And yeah. Sam always presented it like a sport. Mm-hmm. So when... And Vicky and I went to that retirement uh, card. We got kind of turned around because it was not in Keel as it usually was. It yeah. was in the arena, which has been torn down now. But I think it was, I think it was called the Checker Dome then. Yeah. It went back and forth. It was originally the arena. Then Ralston Purina bought it, and then it was the Checker Dome. Then they sold it, and it went back to be in the arena. Yeah. But we got kind of turned around, and we ended up going in this hallway, and that's where the payphones were that the wrestlers used. Yeah. So I shook hands with Ric Flair, Dick the Bruiser, and Greg Valentine. Mm-hmm. Dick the Bruiser was one of the biggest fan favorites in St. Louis at the time. Yeah. Ric Flair and Greg Valentine were the two of the most hated guys in professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. In another territory, if people, if the fans saw that, they'd be like, okay, what's going on? Yeah. But not in St. Louis. Because in St. Louis, you would expect these guys to be professional and not having a fist fight out by the payphones. Yeah. So nobody thought anything of it. And they were like, oh, most places you go, the heels are not shaking hands with people. Yeah. But there was like four of us that all stumbled in the wrong place. Yeah. And we're like, okay, this obviously isn't the way out. And Dick the Bruiser started talking to us. Yeah. So shook his hand. Well, Rick and Greg Valentine are standing there. So Rick Flair puts his hand out. Everybody shakes <laughs> Rick Flair's hand. And then Greg Valentine does. But you tell Greg Valentine didn't really want to. He was like... Why am I shaking hands with the fans? I'm a heel. But yeah, I did. But most, most of the places he had worked at, you would never, ever do that. And he was not a regular in St. Louis at that time. Ah. Ric Flair and Dick the Bruiser were. So they knew that, you know, if you ran into the fans on the street, you didn't necessarily have to worry about it. they were going to attack you. They were, they or you would like, have to right. hate someone else. Yes, they treated them like athletes and were respectful, yeah. even if... You booed them when they were in the ring. Yeah. But, yeah, I was I was just curious of what you thought about it. So I wanted you, since you don't really have any real frame of reference to start, mm-hmm. because I thought about maybe, well, I'll have them watch this stuff today and see, you know, yeah. you're 30 years younger than me. So through your eyes, is this more appealing to you, the stuff that you see nowadays or the older stuff? But I wanted, I'm like, you know, since you don't have any kind of appreciation, you've not seen it, I wanted to introduce you what I liked when I was a kid. So there were uh, 
Kerry wasn't, I told you before, I sent you that match with Kerry and Ken Patera. Yeah. But Kerry Von Erich was not a pro at the time that I, I started uh, watching. Uh, it was my first three favorite wrestlers Yeah, were David and Kevin Von Erich, mm-hmm. because we'd get them in St. Louis all the time, and Ted DiBiase, who we got in St. Louis all the time. Yeah. And he was a fan favorite. I was shocked in the early 80s when I got a wrestling magazine. I saw he was a bad guy in Georgia. Yeah. Because he was like one of the biggest fan favorites in St. Louis. <laughs> or the technical, or technical term, but I, I guess the uh, jargon that the wrestlers use, they used to call them baby faces and heels. So now yeah. when you hear people talk on the shows, that's how they always refer to them as baby faces and heels. Well, we weren't privy to inside jargon in those days. So, originally, when I was reading the magazines and other people would talk about wrestlers, they'd call them the scientific wrestlers. Those were the fan favorites, mm-hmm. which eventually became the fan favorites. Yeah. And then you had the rule breakers. Yeah. They quit calling them scientific wrestlers and fan favorites because some of the greatest scientific wrestlers were bad guys who broke the rules. Yeah. And some of the fan favorites didn't know a wrist lock from a wrist watch. They were punchers and kickers, but they were fan favorites. Mm-hmm. So, then they started calling them fan favorites... And uh, rule breakers. Yeah. Or hated wrestlers developed later on, you know. Now, everybody just says baby faces and heels because that's what the inside... Yeah. And most people know it now because so many people have written books and fans of, you know, smart fans have talked for years and all of that. But that's why I wanted you to watch it. I wanted to give you what I liked... Growing mm-hmm. up first, so you can see it. And I wanted you to give me your... If you thought it stunk, I wanted you to tell yeah. me you thought it stunk. So, no, I actually enjoyed it. Um, like you said, it was like... For me personally, with all the martial arts training, it was like sitting on the bleachers watching a tournament. And I feel like that uh, wrestling had a better chance being presented that way. Yes. Instead of a giant, you know, smoke show now. So I feel like I would prefer this over modern stuff. And I think that that's why it was more popular. And that's I think that's why we've lost so many fans is because yeah. too many people nowadays think it's okay to wink at the audience and to play like this is nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas back then it was taken seriously. Yeah. It's hard for the fans to take it seriously if nobody else in the ring is taking it seriously. Yeah. And my criticism of WWE is it's just some of the most hokey, stupid, idiotic skits. Supposedly, the things that were in there that were supposed to be comedy, which were not funny at all, are the things that Vince thinks is funny. That's Vince McMahon's sense of humor. Well, he's got a weird sense of humor because (laughs) it reminded me of 13-year-old boys learning to cuss for the first time in a bathroom and, Uh. you know, the school talking about stuff because I'm like grown people don't talk like this you know yeah um and it, that may be his way of getting younger audience but you know Vince is obviously out of touch that's the yes. that's the best yeah. thing to call him well and you've not watched much wrestling and you've come to the same conclusion <laughs> that everybody else has yeah. that Vince had fallen out of touch a, a while ago yeah. um and to me you know the whole thing about what took him down and so right before WrestleMania because I think I told you, he, mm-hmm. he got in the ring at WrestleMania, yeah. took his shirt off. Looks great for a mm-hmm. 76-year-old guy. But he's a 76-year-old guy. Number yeah. one, he don't need to be in a ring. Number two, he looks great for 76, but he doesn't look like he looked 25 years ago when he was first getting in the ring. And the other thing was, they had sent this video. They were hyping the Pat McAfee theory match, which is the mm-hmm. one that preceded Vince getting in the ring. And Vince sends him this video and says... 
Austin Theory did five or ten reps with this, and it's like a thousand pound belt squat. Yeah. And Vince puts the belt on and does a squat with a thousand pounds. Okay. What in your life, when you're 76 years old, is a thousand pound belt squat going to help prepare you for? You know, I've been lifting weights since I was 16 years old, and I love it. I still do it four days a week, and I'll do about 45 minutes of cardio afterwards. But at my at fifty three, yeah, I'm thinking about injury prevention and maintenance, losing as little as possible for as long as I can. I'm not thinking about, you know, what I need to do. I need to go strap on about a thousand pounds on this belt squat, yeah, because that's going to help me do what in life? Pick up the grandkids? I don't think so. Somewhere in a different universe, instead of it saying Vince's man retires, it's. Vince McMahon is crippled. Right, exactly. Somewhere. And to me, all of that is... And we all go through it to some degree, but he's still trying to prove that he's the guy he's always been, but we all age. What a losing game. Yep, we all age. Nobody beats Father Time. He's not going to beat Father Time either. And I think a lot of this was he refused to give up any power whatsoever. Mm Mm-hmm to Triple H, to Stephanie, or whatever. And I think it just, eventually, all of it came crashing down. Yeah. But let's hope that that stuff's going to get better. But that's why I think so many people have left. Yeah. Over the, you know, past 20 years and that. So, I think this is as good a place as any to end <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> 57 minutes. <laughs> that, that, well, this doubled the longest podcast I've ever done, so. Hey. <laughs> but, actually, I, I hope the... Listeners get a lot more out of it, but I, I just think it's a much better format. I don't mm-hmm. want to really interview people. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with that and that, but I, I just don't want to be an interview show. I want to talk about wrestling history. Yeah. And I like to see things through your eyes. So like I told you, we're doing St. Louis Wrestling mm-hmm. this month. Next month, I'll probably give you a couple things to watch from the 90s. You are blessed in a way that I'm not. Or I'm going in fresh eyes. <clears throat> Not only fresh eyes, but when I was a kid, you got St. Louis wrestling. We didn't get cable in St. Louis till 1986. Yeah. So all I had originally was St. Louis wrestling. Then when mm-hmm. Vince went national, we would get some WWE. Yeah. My uh, sisters and cousins and everybody down the country, they got cable in 1979. So they were seeing Georgia Championship Wrestling in the early 80s. But the yeah. only time I could see is when I went down to see them. Because we didn't get cable till 86. Mm-hmm. So you only had St. Louis wrestling. Now, between YouTube and you have Peacock, so you've got what was the WWE Network, just about anything that is out there on video still surviving is available to you. Yeah. None of that existed. (laughs) You know, we had the the local show and we had the wrestling magazines. That's that's all we had. I can't recreate that for you. No. But you're blessed that if you want to, you hear somebody talk about something and you want to see it, you've got a means to, to see it. Yeah. You know, so... You're blessed to live in this this time with all of the technology and that yeah. that we have available. So that'll be a, a blessing for you. But we'll look at the 90s probably next month. And then I'm going to let you pick what we do the following month. So if you want to look at some really new stuff, mm-hmm. there's one match from a buy-in show from the AEW pay-per-view. Yeah. And it's a ladies' match. And uh, Thunder Rosa, I think, is one of the best female wrestlers in the world. She's mm-hmm. in it. And it's a pretty good match, but there's yeah. a spot in there that completely took me out of it. 
Right. So after a couple weeks or a couple months of you having watched a few things, I want to see if you can pick up what took me out of that modern thing. But we'll do that. The, th- the third month of your choice. So you could, pick, <laughs> you could pick newer stuff. You could pick really old stuff because you yeah. can go back into the 50s for sure. There's a few things around from the 30s and 40s, but they're usually just yeah. snippets. They're not a full match. Mm-hmm. The oldest existing, and it's hard to see because it's an old film and yeah. there's spots in it that kind of roll and mm-hmm. it's got a lot of uh, lines in it and everything. But the oldest match in existence... It's a work match from 20 or 21, and it's between Joe Stecker and Earl Caddock. And it was one of the times they traded the world title. But it was a huge match at that time, and they really built it up. And this was the the horrible thing Mm -hmm. is the second Gotch versus Hackenschmidt match. The title change in St. Louis and in Michigan in 1925 after the double cross, where Lewis takes the title back from Munn and Stecker takes the title from Zabisco. Mm-hmm. And then the 1928, which is supposed to be a shoot between Stecker and Lewis, and I think it was in the beginning. Yeah. And I think at some point, Stecker realized he couldn't win, and then it then it became a, a work. They started working for the last half of that match. Those were all on film. Mm-hmm. And they've all been lost. Yeah. So that that's a shame, because it would it would be awesome to be able to look at some of those early yeah. matches, uh, and thankfully with wrestling, like I've noticed, like most of that is archived. There's not a whole lot of lost media, like you, like you said. There's only like five or so matches. Well, the the problem is some of the territory stuff. Oh yeah. So they they had all those territory shows. Mm-hmm. Well, tape for television was very expensive. Yeah. So they recorded over it a lot of times. Ah. So a lot Oof. of the Memphis stuff is gone. A, a lot of the Detroit stuff. There's some that survived. I, I guess it's just logical to think that the local like territory stuff would disappear. Yeah, but there is still a lot out there. Just about any, everything that survives is out yeah. there. So you're blessed in that way. But let's call it to an end. I think that you know some of the listeners have tapped out. <laughs> I I don't know this is a bad normal podcast runtime. Maybe not maybe not your podcast. <laughs> well, there's only so much history people can take in. It's like putting eight pounds of knowledge in a five pound bag. Oh yeah. So with that, if you like the show, uh please uh like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you could give us a rating on iTunes, that would be great because that will help us get uh discovered. And if you want to contact me or you want to send an email to the show, you can just go to kenzermanjr.com and just go to the contact page. And there's multiple ways there to send us things either through email, uh, Facebook, or Twitter. And so with that, I'll sign off. And I will sign off as well. (laughs) And Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Exactly.